from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. Are you afraid of the dark? That's the question we're going to explore today on Religion for Life, and we'll begin with a poem by Robert Frost. It's one of my favorites. It's called Acquainted with the Night. I have been one, acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I've looked down the saddest city lane. I've passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I've stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. That's Robert Frost, Acquainted with the Night. So rather than be afraid of the dark, some spiritual leaders invite us to be acquainted with the dark, to learn the ways of the dark, to learn to walk in the dark. My guest is Barbara Brown Taylor. She is the Butman Professor of Religion at Piedmont College in rural northeast Georgia, an Episcopal priest since 1984. She's the author of 12 books, including the New York Times bestseller, An Altar in the World. Her first memoir, Leaving Church, met with widespread critical acclaim, winning a 2006 Author of the Year Award from the Georgia Writers Association. She and her husband, Ed, live on a working farm in the foothills of the Appalachians. And she's with me via phone from the foothills of Appalachia. Welcome, Barbara, to Religion for Life. Thank you so much, John. Uh, in your introduction, you wrote, I've never written a book. I've been sadder to finish uh, since I've enjoyed writing it so much. How did this book come to be, and, and what does it mean to you? I think it began when I started paying attention to how many people use darkness to mean everything negative. Um, you can hear it in speech patterns when people talk about being in a dark place or someone being in a dark humor going over to the dark side, and it occurred to me that since I've moved to the country, darkness has taken on a whole new meaning for me. It started at the literal, physical level, and that ended up being the bridge to reconsidering darkness at a deeper level. So I decided that was interesting enough to write a book about. And, and there's a, a great deal of, of pressure in religion to, to be bright and light uh, and, and make that kind of a, a sign of faith, kind of to disparage darkness. Is, is that what you mean by a, a solar spirituality? I do, and I also mean the kind of spirituality that strives for 24-7 reliability um, and thinks that Everything should look the same way every day. And I think if I'm any example, a lot of that's taught to us. It doesn't match our experience, but we get a little afraid to confess our experience because it doesn't match that ideal of sunny spirituality. So, yes, I felt that pressure myself and have spent enough time in pastoral ministry to know I'm not alone. 
Well, learning to walk in the dark, uh, it, it's a metaphor, but, but it's also something um, that, that we need to do physically. And you, you just mentioned that you kind of learned to do that living in the rural places, uh, to be more attuned to the actual dark. Yes, I think that is um, the belay, the, the rope that you can count on to lower you down into other levels of darkness. I think anyone who walks into the physical dark experiences probably a biological, almost evolutionary jolt of being a little more careful, moving more slowly. And it occurs to me that that, that is a, a cue to the way that we respond to other kinds of darkness as well, emotional darkness, relational darkness, existential darkness, spiritual darkness. So I'd, I'd have taken my cue from my physical walks in the dark, but the exploration doesn't end there. And uh, in, in your book, you talk about um, actually going and being led in, in the dark um, by a person who, who was blind. And then in another instance, you went into uh, a dark cave and sat in the darkness. Uh, how, how did that um, impact you? I think the largest surprise was that I was not more fearful than I was. The experience being led by a blind person through virtually kind of a social environment experiment. What was very telling was at the end of an hour of what was called a dialogue in the dark, I wanted it to be over. And my guide was living the kind of life where it would never be over. So that was sobering. But also enlightening, is that a pun or the opposite of a pun, in that um, she knew her way around places I zoom through all the time and don't even look. And she knew everything about every room we were in because she was using senses that I leave in the drawer. And then the cave was another thing altogether that I expected to be terrified. I expected to have a panic attack and instead I didn't want it to end. I wished we had brought our sleeping bags and could have spent the night. You did a lot of research, and, and those two kinds of activities were part of your research. What else did you do in, in preparing to, to write a book about the dark? Well, I'm a, a book nerd, so I read a lot of books. The best part of my book, I think, is a bibliography, and that gives you clues to everybody I leaned on to point me in different directions that I wanted to explore firsthand. But a lot of it, uh, a lot of my own spirituality is about sticking close to home don't need to get on an airplane, don't need to go to exotic places. So one of the most telling things I did was just to take an air mattress out in the front yard and lie there completely intending to notice the moment that day turned to night. And it was impossible to do because the, uh, the sky got darker and darker, but it never got entirely dark. So that when I went back inside, I thought, what do we mean when we say it's dark outside? It never really is much darker in a closet or a cave than it is under the sky. So a lot of the experiments were just walking around my home and learning how to walk both unfamiliar places and familiar places without a flashlight, paying attention to what it took to do that. And you talk about that as, as a part of developing courage. Um, and, and you talk also about children needing to kind of um, be able to learn that in, in this really super lit world in which we live, that that sense of walking in the dark seems to have been uh, robbed from us. Yes, and I'm aware that's easy for me to say because I'm not a parent. I'm a grandparent, but I have never been in charge of a small child. I think I would probably wrap that child in pillows and and do all kinds of things harmful by way of protection. But I am aware 
through grandchildren and other young children I'm around that we really do rescue them from many, many things that scare them, um, some rightfully so, and others where we rob them of the opportunity to grow courage, to practice courage on a regular basis. I think natural darkness is a kind of benign, cheap, readily available way to help children grow courage. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Barbara Brown-Taylor. She's the author of Learning to Walk in the Dark. And uh, one of the things, uh, one of the metaphors or the themes or the the, uh, conversations you have throughout the book is uh, is about the moon. Uh, Did you learn a lot about the moon in the course of writing this book? I did. I was kind of embarrassed about how little I knew about the moon. Mm. I could not have told you to begin with when it was filling and when it was emptying. When did it look like a C and when did it look like a D? Nor did I have any clue that every month has its own name for the full moon. This is May, so it's the flower moon in the sky now, and in June it will be the strawberry moon. In July, it will be the buck moon, and those names change depending on what Native American tribe you live near or what farmer's almanac you're using. But the biggest surprise was how little I knew about something that was over my head every single night, Uh, even something as simple as where does it come up and where does it go down. But I know that now. Uh, and, and uh, of course, including, um, or in addition to learning to walk in the dark in a, in a, in a physical way, uh, it also has uh, psychological and spiritual uh, meanings to this metaphor. And, and as I was reading your work, I kept thinking of Robert Frost's poem, I Have Been One Acquainted with the Night. And I always loved that poem, and I never thought the poem was about depression until I read a commentary on it. But but you yourself, in, in the writing of this book, uh, have become acquainted with the night. I have, and I think it's not just through the book. I probably wrote the book because I'm acquainted with the night. I was an mm. early lover of the night, and I've also always been sort of a melancholy uh, character. Uh, I would have been more fashionable in the Middle Ages, where there was a huge fat book called, um, what, The Art of Melancholy, And Hmm. so there are ways in which I was exploring territory that was familiar to me, though I didn't have many handles on it. So the book was a good way to explore that. I wonder if Robert Frost knows that his poem was about depression. Uh, I haven't read the commentary, but I'd like to. One thing I would add is there there are many kinds of depression, and I think it it ranges all the way from sort of garden-variety blues, which are a part of the human condition, to clinical depression, which calls for professional help and some chemical rebalancing. But some of the research I did under the tutelage of an author named Miriam Greenspan suggested that culturally we have a pretty low tolerance for sadness, and that makes garden-variety depression much more prevalent because we haven't really embraced sadness as a regular part of life. made sense to me. Yeah, you're careful in your book to distinguish um, depression from from darkness. Uh, you're right, and I'm, I'm, you're, I'm paraphrasing this, but you're right that depression is, is something you go through with the goal of kind of getting back to where you were before, but darkness or the dark night of the soul is, is what transforms you. Um, did, did I get that right, or, or can you talk about the difference? Yes. I can go all the way back to John of the Cross on that one, 16th century mystic who wrote the classic Dark Night of the Soul. And even he had two different words for darkness. And one was, my Spanish is not so good, tenieblas. That was a kind of darkness he said you'd do well to run from. 
But there was another kind of darkness called obscura, obscure. And he believed that was the darkness where God dwells and that that was the kind to stay with. That's that's the, the darkness made available in the dark night of a soul that's not to be gotten over, but to be surrendered to. Uh, Evelyn Underhill, also a, a teacher of mysticism, made a distinction between mysticism and madness. And I think she was getting at the same point, that there's more than one kind of darkness out there, and they're not all to be run from, though they may all be scary. Hey, uh, the darkness uh, that's been associated with with depression or with evil or the dark lord or the dark side or or the prince of darkness or the dark ages uh, um, and and we think of all of this as going through a dark time but, but of course I'm reading you're saying that that the darkness is a place to find the sacred or the holy absolutely is I've spent the last three days crawling through the first five books of the Bible, paying all kinds of attention to the places where God comes, especially to Moses in a dark cloud, but not only to Moses. I've been paying attention to all the things that happen in the nighttime, from Abraham and the stars to Jacob and the ladder and the angel and Joseph with his dreams. Um, And it's been amazing to me, though darkness, the word, gets a very bad rap in the Bible the things that happen at night are almost always transformative signal events in both the lives of individuals and the lives of the people of Israel. So I can, um, I can work with any biblical literalist on that one. <laughs> you, you know, sometimes people will, will say in, in a way of greeting, you know, I, I wrap you in the light or bless you in the light. Maybe a greeting would be appropriate. I, I wrap you in the dark. It sounds... So odd, but I'm practicing it because I think it's I think it's biblical. I'm an Episcopalian. I got a prayer book with Vespers and Compline evening prayer in it. There's a season of Advent of increasing darkness, and I think there are a lot of rich liturgical church resources that are not made much of while we're focused only on the light. And yet, if we want whole lives, there's going to be both in them. There's going to be sun and moon and light and dark, the whole thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we lost our we lost our son, our 25 year old son, and th- in this period of, of grief, um, to use your metaphor of darkness and light is is dark, not light. But you know, I find I found that it's it's hard to get people to understand this. That that well, I don't want to romanticize grief. It's it's nonetheless um, a, a sacred walk in the dark. And I, I and sometimes I really don't want light. <laughs> I want to find God in the dark. And I, and I just want you to know that I read in your book a validation of that. Nothing could please me more. Nothing could please me more, and I have no idea uh, what that loss would be like. As close as I've come is the loss of a very beloved father. Uh, A friend told me while I was sitting with him in hospice that I would be surprised when he died to be reluctant to go back into my life as it had been. And that sounded so odd to me then, but I discovered she was right, that like you, I did not want to rush back into my well-lit life. I had found things at that rock-bottom dark place that were so valuable to me that I did never want to forget them, and I didn't want to get back into the kind of life that would encourage me to forget them. So I, um, that you would say that to me means a great deal to me. Well, you know, I've, I've often wondered, uh, 
why it is that we grieve um, and, and, and what, what that means. And, and, and as I'm thinking, we just we almost like sleep. I guess we need we need we need the dark as mm-hmm. something that uh, is an aspect of life. It's true. You just reminded me how often, again, I pay attention to language. We talk about pure grief, pure grief. And I think grief is also purifying. There mm. is a, there's a way in which when you're grieving, uh, well, any number of things, but especially a loved one, there's not a doubt in your mind that you are doing the one thing that needs to be done. And that's very liberating. And, and another point of, of validation uh, that I read in your work, uh, by the way, if uh, listeners are just joining us on Religion for Life, I'm speaking with Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, author of Learning to Walk in the Dark. And and um, and what I read in your work had to do with embracing um, embracing the unknown as, as a path of faith. Uh, and you write, um, I'm quoting here, the good news is that dark and light, faith and doubt, divine absence and presence do not exist at opposite poles. Instead, they exist with and within each other, like distinct waves that roll out of the same ocean and roll back into it again. Um, I love your writing, by the way. And, and you write that this faith doesn't give you a safe place to settle. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about, about your faith? Mm. A walk in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's age-appropriate. Um, when I talk about embracing the unknown as a path of faith, I don't think I'm saying anything new. I mean, Gregory of Nyssa, 4th century, mm-hmm. cloud of unknowing. This has been a minority theme in the Christian life of faith for from the beginning, but it's not the majority view. So in a lot of ways, the books I enjoy writing the most have to do with picking up sort of a lost thread and holding it back up again to be reexamined. But I think... Where I am in terms of faith is not a a prescription. This isn't a how-to book, but I think it's age-appropriate. There are fewer handrails available to me at 60-plus than there were in my 20s. I've had more experience both with recovery and with increasing loss, and I'm intentionally practicing befriending the dark uh, because when my time comes... um, hmm. I want to be as ready as it's possible for a human being to be and somehow to make that St. Francis transition into welcoming sister death instead of seeing her as enemy. You know, I wonder if sometimes people um, kind of need permission um, to to go ahead and walk in the dark, to go ahead and have, metaphorically now, theologically, I suppose, uh, doubts, and to go ahead and, and em- embrace, you know, what people might say is a loss of faith, rather rather than, you know, a, a, a journey to something even more interesting, perhaps. And and because it seems to me that the religious institution, and, and I'm part of this thing too, um, really, really emphasizes, you know, um, getting through it and getting happy again or getting belief again. And and sometimes I, I, I just, li- like I say, as a validation from your book, we need a little permission to go ahead and take that dark walk and say that's an okay thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think... Well, someone just asked me, they said, how do, you, how do you spend time with people who have no qualms about their faith? And I said, I've never met anybody who doesn't have qualms. I've just met people who've been told they can't own up to them mm-hmm. or they shouldn't have them. But I think it's a part of any genuine life of faith. There's just nobody whose lights are on all the time. But we do get a pretty loud message that that's not a great thing to talk about. It'll bring people down or they'll start avoiding us 
or we'll become known as gloomy people. It goes on and on and on. So, yes, I would love to be part of an antidote to that that says at least the the cycle is 360. The sun, the moon, they go all the way around. And while, as you say, the loss of a child or a beloved one, that's not a sun that comes back up, um, there is some reliability to the return of light for most of us most of the time. Yeah, Isla, just a couple of details. One thing I, I learned that I didn't know in your book about about the three days uh, uh-huh. of, of the moon, uh, and that might, might have been a metaphor for, uh, well, Jesus or, and, and Jonah, I suppose. Right. And when you think about all those three days, and again, I read that in a couple of books. I think it's doubly attested that, that the ancient people didn't miss that, that there were three nights every month when there was no moon in the sky, and that that became a ready kind of handle for talking about a period of death and rebirth, because the very time the new moon is being born is when it's invisible to the human eye. So there's a wonderful paradox in that that really matters to me. You know, um, because we live in industrial civilization in which it seems like it is 24-7, at least in the first world, in the world that's that's burning a lot of the fossil fuels, um, that, that, it, that we're just full of light. And we, of course, lost connection with, with, um, with the moon or the dark or even the dark farm I grew up in in Montana that I, that I miss now. And I always love the dark. But, but in a sense, we, that's, that's where the, the scriptures, of course, were written. And this, this idea of constant light is really a, an aberration in our human history. It is. The only exception, I've talked to some people who live way, way up near the Arctic Circle, and they've told me mm. I need to come visit sometime when it never, never gets dark. But I think you're right. What most of us forget is that widespread, available, cheap electricity has only been available, well, for less than 100 years in parts of the rural south, not till the 1940s. So this is a very new phenomenon. It's affecting everything from migratory birds to turtle navigational systems when they lay their eggs to human physiology, our melatonin levels and what they have to do with everything from diabetes, heart disease, anxiety. It's kind of alarming, really, to look into a lot of the unexpected changes in biology, the biology of the planet, that are are being brought on by so much artificial light. And we're all participating in a science experiment, but we didn't sign permission slips. Yeah, it was just heartbreaking, the story of, of the turtle uh, who was, who's evolved to look for the lightest part and then goes the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the same thing then happens to the babies because they go the wrong way, too. And it's, um, I don't know what will happen there, but... It's uh, certainly in the, the Golden Isles along the coast of Georgia, um, a lot of people worried about that, all the development on the shore that's changing the light patterns in the sky. You know, um, an earlier book that you, that you wrote was, was Leaving Church, kind of back to the theological again. Uh, is part of the reason for your own leaving is because is what this book is about? I think there are 10 ways to tell that story. Um, I think that uh, and thank you for getting the title right. So many people say leaving the church, and I don't know why that matters to me, but I just celebrated my 30th anniversary uh, of ordination. So mm-hmm. it matters to me that I continue to exercise what I think of as a priesthood. What I did leave was the church I served as a priest. And I like to think of that as um, 
being a move toward a broader ministry and maybe one, again, mm-hmm. without as many handrails, but it's just as possible. It was about poor boundaries or too much romanticism or a touch too much OCD. So there are probably 10 ways to tell the story, but I do know I'm a pretty happy college teacher. Sometimes I think I got out of the answer business and got into the question business, and I, I like that a lot better. It's always wonderful to be able to give grades. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I love that way of saying out of the answer business and into the question business. I, 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 I would hope that the church could be uh, more, more like that in, in many respects. Um, you know, I think— um, I wonder if more people would would be willing to walk in the dark, um, metaphorically and literally, if they had if they had some kind of guide. Have there been guides for you? You mentioned John of the Cross and, and some others in your book, who may, or maybe you can tell us who's some of the most really important guides for you. I would love to, and I'll preface it by saying I'm an introvert, so I mm-hmm. will look for different kinds of guides than extroverts will. So a lot of my guides, as you point out, were literary. They are people, not only John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, even Teresa of Calcutta, who wrote about long, long dry spell in her life with God, Gerald May, well, a lot of people in the bibliography of the book. But I've also, as I've been talking about this book, met so many people who do everything from lead night hikes in state parks to people who do... Um, chaplaincy groups with college students in the dark to clergy at a cathedral in Seattle who have a 9.30 p.m. Compline every Sunday night that draws more people than the number who come to church on Sunday morning. So it's been incredible to run into all kinds of people in so many ways who are exploring the dark and inviting companions to come along with them. So I think once you express interest and begin to look around, you find quite a few companions who've just been lying a little bit low, but they're there. That's what I was thinking, too. I think there are a lot of people who are acquainted with the night and, and uh, interested in walking the dark. They're just not, they might be a minority club, but they're out there. They are out there, yes. Um, well, I just have a minute or so left. Are you working on another book now? I always think that's like asking somebody with a newborn. When oh, that's <laughs> awful. Well, I mean, yeah. Congratulations <laughs> no, on this wonderful book. Well, and I also know a lot of authors who never let go of one without knowing what the next one's going to be because they love it so much. I'm a kind of a Sabbath person. I need to let this field lie fallow for a while. I also, as I said at the beginning, or as you said at the beginning, I was just sad to finish this one, so I'm not eager to start something new. Though I think there is a book to be written about teaching world religions in rural Georgia during the last 15 years. I got there before 9-11. I've been there a long time after 9-11, and I've really watched... I don't think the religious landscape of America changed, but our awareness of the changing religious landscape. So there's probably a book to be written about that, but it will be a while coming. Barbara Brand Taylor, thank you for being with me on Religion for Life. She's the author of Learning to Walk in the Dark, a, a beautiful lyrical book, uh, and I encourage you all to pick that up. You can find more information about her work at her website, barbarabrowntaylor.com. Again, thank you for this and for spending time with me today on Religion for Life. John, I loved every minute of it. Thank you so much for the great questions. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, 
Listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.